0: Good morning and welcome. It's Easter Sunday, but it's unlike any Easter Sunday you or I have experienced in our lifetimes. I've entitled today's sermon, Glorification, Our Hope, God's Promise. And I trust that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are living in the hope of what we have in Him. Easter is a special reminder of that hope. If you're like me, Easter is your favorite holiday of the year. And not because of the chocolate. Christmas I love, and Christmas is a time filled with wonder and joy. We are reminded that Jesus, who is God the Son, came down from heaven to become a tiny, helpless baby in order that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. But the purpose of Christmas, the whole point of Christmas, is Easter. Jesus came to seek and save sinners, you and I. And in order to save us, He would have to give his life. He would have to shed his blood. Christmas had to happen because Easter had to happen. Because Easter happened, because Jesus died on the cross in our place, suffered our punishment, died and rose again on the third day, we have hope, a sure hope, one that cannot be taken away from us. And this morning, I want to give you one more reason to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, as Paul writes in Romans 5-2, and repeats in his letters to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, and to Titus. And maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Notice I didn't say churchgoer. There are sadly many who are going to church, even regularly, who are not following Jesus and I was one of those ones. Being a follower of Jesus means that you have given over the rule of your life to his kingship. You are no longer the master of your fate and the captain of your soul, as the poem Invictus claims. That's an illusion anyway. You are no longer the decision maker in your life. You have made every area of your life subject to him and given him the authority to do with your life as he chooses. If you are not a follower of Jesus and you find yourself here this morning, this hope that I referred to is not yours. The Bible says that you are under God's condemnation and wrath. and eternal punishment awaits you unless you repent and take advantage of God's offer of complete forgiveness through Jesus. So listen carefully. I'm going to tell you how that hope can become your hope today. Let's recap. The last two weeks, we have examined two very significant terms in the Bible, justification and sanctification. And today we'll be examining the third term, glorification. Two weeks ago, I preached on justification. Justification describes a past event for followers of Jesus. It occurred when we repented of our sin before God and turned to Jesus for forgiveness. God, in that moment, took all of our sin all our offense against him and the debt that we had incurred. And he transferred it all to Jesus' account so that Jesus had to suffer our punishment. He had to pay our debt. And don't think for a minute that God gave Jesus a discount because Jesus was his son. He poured out the full wrath and punishment for our sin on Jesus. An old hymn states it this way. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. And if that wasn't enough, God went further. He took all the obedience, all the righteousness, all the perfection of Jesus, and he transferred that to our account so that we enjoy all the rights and the privileges and the pleasure of God that is actually rightfully belonging to Jesus. It's a legal status that becomes ours the moment we confess our sin, repent and look to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. And the consequence of that act of justification by God, Paul lays out in Romans 5 verse 1 where he writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the opposite of peace? War, I suppose, or at least strife. But we're no longer at war with God when we are in Christ. There is no longer any strife with him. He is no longer against us as our enemy. He is actually for us as a father would be. Why? Because we've somehow done something to earn his favor? Not a chance. Rather, it's because of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross of Calvary. Because he shed his blood on the cross, suffered our punishment, died, was buried, and rose again. The punishment for our sin has been meted out. Justice has been served. And now Paul can say in Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not through our works. It's all of him. You can't earn your forgiveness or salvation. It's a gift of grace through faith. Can you look back in your life to a time when you did business with God, as it were? When you acknowledged your sin and your debt before Him and asked Him to forgive you and make things right again? He desires to do that for you. Why not make today? that day, the first day in a long line of wonderful tomorrows, knowing that you have been made free from the guilt and penalty of your sin before God, and that you will never walk through any of those tomorrows alone, because he is the God who is with us. Do it today. And then last week, Jermaine taught us about sanctification, the work of God to produce in us the image of Jesus Christ. Unlike justification, which was a one-time past event, sanctification is occurring right now on our journey of following Jesus. And it's ongoing. You will notice, however, in Scripture that the word is often used in the past tense. Are sanctified. As well as in the ongoing sense, are being sanctified. This isn't a contradiction. But rather, it can also describe our status as opposed to the process. And it also reflects how sure the promises of God are. When God, as the omniscient and omnipotent ruler of the universe, makes a promise, it's as good as done. We need never fear that something unexpected will come up and foil God's plan. So Paul can talk about it in the past tense because we are already perfected into the image of Christ. Well, sorry, not because we are already perfected into the image of Christ, but because we will be with 100% certainty if we are genuinely saved. If you are a follower of Jesus, you should be able to look back over your life and see a progression toward being conformed to the image of Christ. If you look back 10 years and you see no difference, and it doesn't really bother you either, then you need to question whether you were ever saved. Now, before we look at the passage in Romans, I would like for us to look at the account of the first Easter. Turn, please, in your Bibles to Luke, chapter 23, verse 14. If you are new to your Bible, then Luke is the third of the books in the New Testament. Luke 23, verse 14. I want to start here because I want to set the stage. I'm going to skip verses along the way, and then we will hit our focus in chapter 24. But here we are, the first Easter. Luke chapter 23. To set the stage, we have come to the culmination of Jesus' ministry on earth, the purpose for which he came. Betrayed by Judas and handed over to the religious leaders, he is brought to Pilate, the Roman governor, who says in verse 14, This before all of the religious leaders and the people gathered there. You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. So first off, Pilate indicates that Jesus is innocent. And then in verse 16, it says, I will therefore punish and release him. Punish for what? So there's an injustice right there. Then further on down in verse 23, it reads this. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Pilate was going to release him. They wanted him crucified. And their voices prevailed. And so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. What? How is that just or fair? He delivered Jesus over to their will, it says. Now skip on to verse 33. In verse 33, it says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him there and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So now he is crucified. In verse 44, It says this, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This darkness was um, intentional. It was unnatural, or should we say supernatural. It is believed that in this time, God, the holy judge, judged Jesus for our sin. And over in verse 46, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. That phrase means that he died. Verse 47, the centurion, when he saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. I want you to understand that this centurion, as a a soldier by occupation, would have likely seen many, many crucifixions. He knew what they were supposed to look like. He'd seen hundreds of them, likely, before. This one? This one was unique. Something was different about the way this man died. He speaks out of his superstition. He doesn't know God. But he certainly knows that something unusual took place here. And he says, certainly, this man was innocent. And then I want you to look in verse 49. All his acquaintances, that's Jesus' acquaintances, and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. I want you to think for a moment uh, or imagine for a moment that you are one of the disciples and you are watching all of this happen. I want you to try and imagine for a moment what they are going through As they watch all of this transpire. And then over to verse 55, it says this The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. The women saw where his body had been laid, which tomb it had been placed in. And then they went and they prepared spices for his burial. Perhaps you've heard of Pastor Lockridge. He was a Baptist preacher from 1953 to 1993, and he preached a very famous sermon entitled, It's Friday, but Sunday's Coming. Let me quote a few lines It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleep. Judas is betraying, but Sunday's Coming. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday, but let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved but they don't know it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won, sin has conquered, and Satan's just a-laughing. It's Friday, Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday, it is only Friday. Sunday is a coming. (laughs) I don't know if that that poem moves you the way that it does me, but the followers of Jesus, the disciples and the women, they didn't know that. They didn't know that Sunday's a comin'. All the onlookers, the disciples, the women, his mother, curious onlookers, they watched him die. People don't survive crucifixion. They're not supposed to. I wonder if his followers thought perhaps there would be some miraculous intervention. After all, Jesus had healed the blind, the lame. He had calmed storms. He had brought the dead to life. Couldn't he just take himself off the cross? surely they hoped that that somehow this bad situation was going to turn around but it didn't jesus was dead maybe you've experienced that kind of loss <laughs> i remember when we went through those very hard years with our david that we as parents still held out hope that he would change that he would make different choices that there would be a a happy ending to the story And I'm grateful that just like the Easter story, there is a happy ending, a hope-filled ending. It just wasn't the ending we were imagining, just like it wasn't the ending the followers of Jesus imagined. When the police woke us at three in the morning to tell us our David had died, I felt both gut-punched and numb. I had, to a degree, been holding on to that hope And now it was gone. But I was also holding on to Jesus and praise God, he never left. The followers of Jesus must have felt that same way. Bewildered is far too mild a term. Their whole world was rocked. For three years, they had followed Jesus. They had come to believe he was the Messiah. And they had staked their lives, their reputations, their everything on that. And now he was dead. And buried. And so were all their hopes and dreams. But now let's read verse 1 of chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. What were they coming to do? They were coming to bury him. They were coming to prepare a body. And they found the stone Rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. (laughs) They were perplexed. You think? I sometimes smile at how Scripture so effectively uses understatement. I would imagine they would be stunned and confused. And then these men in dazzling apparel, they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus is alive. He's not here. This place is for dead people. He's alive. He's not here. Verse six. He is not here, but he has risen. <laughs> this event which is called the resurrection, ladies and gentlemen. It sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Christianity is unique because Jesus, who we follow, is alive. And our hope comes from this fact. If Jesus is able to conquer the grave, if he has risen from the dead, then death and the grave can have no hold over us either if we are his. Paul writes this very thing in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-five, where he shouts, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death! Where is your sting? Ben Cantillon wrote the song Savior of the World. The newsboys have made it famous. The lyrics go like this God so loved that he gave his son to lay down his life for the sake of us. He bore the weight of our sin and shame. With a cry, he said, It is finished. Christ the Lord overcame the darkness, he's alive. Death has been defeated, for he made us a way by which we have been saved. He's the Savior of the world. So we lift up a shout for his fame and renown. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, Jesus, Savior of the world. The second verse reads as follows. We must spread the word of his soon return to reclaim the world for his glory. Let the church now sing of this coming king, crowned with majesty, our redeemer. And he reigns, ruler of the heavens, and his name is Jesus, the Messiah. For he made us a way by which we have been saved. He's the savior of the world. And this this brings us to today's passage. So let's take a look at this term, glorification. Turn with me, please, to Romans 8. We're going to read beginning at verse 18. Romans 8 and verse 18. So if you're in the book of Luke, the next gospel is John and then Acts and then Romans. Romans chapter 8. And Paul says this. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? Hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Here is the description of the reality in which we live. We have discussed justification. Those of us who are followers of Jesus have been justified, made righteous through his death, burial, and resurrection. If Easter didn't happen, if Jesus didn't rise again, then we're not justified. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But then he goes on to say, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and so our justification is taken care of as well. And along with that, we discussed sanctification, the process of being transformed into the image of Christ, which is what we who are followers of Jesus are experiencing presently. And it is at times encouraging and at other times disheartening. Paul talks about the suffering that we experience. He talks about the creation being subjected to futility. Life is just hard a lot of the time. A struggle through so much of our experience. And he talks about the inward groaning, the deep longing we have for something more. Paul expresses in the previous chapter to this, chapter 7 of Romans, that I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He expresses this frustration that the desire is to do so much more, to, to be so much more. But there's this war raging inside between the new nature that's been awakened in him and the sin nature that is part of his and our flesh. He cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? John MacArthur said it this way, I'm not what I ought to be, but I know what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be, but I know what I want to be. When Paul says, Who shall separate me from this body of death? He's actually referring to a practice that was carried out in those times. If a man was found guilty of murder, sometimes the sentence was to have the dead man's body strapped to his body until the decay finally took over the living person and killed them. How horrific. And imagine if that was our experience, to be awakened to know that there was something more, but to never experience it, to always be tied to this body of death until it finally won, to never, ever be free from the presence of sin, that would be cruel. But that is not your destiny, child of God. You have a promise of hope, the hope of glorification. And what is glorification? It's the realization of the process of developing Christ-likeness. Do you see the parallels in the passage we read to what we looked at previously regarding Easter? Paul is, in essence, describing our Easter, as it were. Jesus, the Son of God, experienced in his human form the bondage to corruption that life on this planet endures at present. Hunger, hardships, weariness, grief, pain, loss, and death. He went through great suffering on the cross, And after enduring such suffering, he died and was buried. But then came Sunday when he was raised to life again. He was revealed in his new form, still as a man with a solid body even, but no longer subject to futility. In verse 19 of Romans 8, Paul refers to us as sons of God. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And that the creation is waiting for that. In our experience, we too endure the bondage to corruption. We too experience the futility of this life, the struggle and the suffering. And if we are in Christ Jesus then we too have the hope of that revealing where we will be glorified like him, where we will enter into the experience of being transformed into Christ likeness. It can't happen here in this realm, in these bodies. Our bodies have to be changed, but change they will. The last Part of this chapter talks about the promise of glorification. And so I'd like to close today's sermon by reading these three verses. Skip down, if you would, to verse 28. In verse 28, we get the promise. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Hey, that's the sanctification. In order that that he, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Look at the verb tenses throughout that passage. They're all in the past tense. Just like we discussed with sanctification earlier on, the reason they're all in the past tense is not because they happened in the past, but it's because God's promises are so sure that they might as well have happened in the past. If you are being sanctified now, if you can see the evidence of that in your life, it is evidence that you were in fact justified in the past. And verse 30 says that if you were justified, then you will be glorified. This is what we experience here day to day. Sorry, this, what we experience here day to day, is not the best it's going to get. We who are in Christ Jesus have so much more to look forward to. It only gets better for us. We have been justified. Our guilt is removed. We are being sanctified, transformed more and more into the image of Christ and one day we will be glorified, entering the very presence of God for all of eternity with immortal and incorruptible bodies that will never again experience the presence of sin. This is the promise of Easter. Are you in Him this morning? Have you placed your faith in Him for forgiveness and salvation? If so, rejoice. What a glorious future lies before us. Whatever we suffer, whatever we endure here, it pales in comparison to the glory that awaits us when Jesus Christ returns. And if you're listening this morning and you don't know the forgiveness and grace that God offers, but you want it, you want the hope that Easter promises, now is the time. Acknowledge your sin before him right where you are. Tell him. You understand that you deserve death as the punishment for your sin. But you also understand that Jesus was your substitute. He paid your penalty. Ask God for the forgiveness that is offered through faith in Jesus. Submit your life and your heart to the one and only king who deserves your worship. Enter into the hope that Easter offers. And then tell someone what you've done if you took God at his word this morning and asked him for salvation, please tell me by sending an email to mike.fellowshiposhawa at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you and I would love to pray for you. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for the promise, the hope that Easter offers. We celebrate it because it means this Isn't all there is. We experience in our lives good things, wonderful things, but there is always that burden, and the Bible describes it as the bondage to corruption. And we know that we aren't all that we long to be. But Father, you promise that when we are in Christ Jesus, that you will remove the penalty of that sin from us. And you will will continue to work in us, to transform us into the image of Christ. The power of sin is no longer overshadowing us. We can be free from that. And one day we will be glorified. We will even be free from the presence of that sin. And we look forward to that. And Father, if there was somebody this morning who was listening and did not, does not know you, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would just convict them this morning and drive them to you. That you would give them forgiveness and salvation through Jesus' finished work on the cross. May this be an Easter to remember, an Easter to rejoice in. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for who you are and what you've accomplished through your son Jesus on the cross at Calvary. It's in his name we pray, amen.